0: And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. You know, Mark chapter 14 is twice as long as many of the other chapters in this gospel, and about 20 verses longer than some of the bigger ones. But the subject matter is vital to understand, and it's difficult to to go through, you know, when we are reading it as it, um you know, it would have been originally heard as a letter out loud in congregations as a whole. It was likely originally read to a congregation of believers in Rome or at least in a Roman colony. And we've discussed why, you know, the number of Latin loan words and concepts just doesn't line up with this having been written for a Jewish audience as, as Matthew was. To the original hearers, this was recent news historically, as, you know, we would talk about the events from the 80s or the 90s today. And if you're old enough to have been alive at the time, the memories have a very visceral feel to them. You know, this wasn't ancient history. This wasn't read to an audience who didn't understand life in the first century, and especially among the Jews in the congregation, of which there would have been many, because Rome had a very vibrant Jewish community. Usually, excepting, of course, when they were expelled by Claudius for a while. For this crowd, injustice is a real daily event. Crucifixion is a real event. The horror of betraying someone you've shared a meal with would have shaken them to the core. They didn't read this with... um first-century values and living conditions somewhere in the rearview mirror, and although they were probably city people, this chapter happens in and around a city. The Jewish congregants understood the Passover and would have been providing context, and they would have understood the travesty of justice from a uniquely Jewish point of view, even though most or maybe none had ever set foot in the Holy Land. As we go through the chapter, um... I want you to imagine this scene of Jews and Gentiles, um, I already believers, okay? Living through this together as part of a listening experience and uh, conversation. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah, and if you prefer written material, I have um, six years' worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the links for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com, and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes Curtis the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. I promise I, you know, won't have it. Now, a list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. And you know, when we do Matthew, I think I'm going to use the CSB, the complete, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, my friend who's getting his PhD in Old Testament studies, Matt Knapper, he's a Torah teacher and, uh, he really recommended it to me. I've been using it on the kids show and I'm really liking it. So we're going to switch it up a little bit for the next one. And I got an interlinear on that too. So we're, we're good. Thank you to everybody who helped me buy Logos all those years ago. Anyway, um, so we're in chapter 14 this week. And for the next, I think, nine weeks, nine weeks will be in chapter 14 because we've got to talk about the Passover. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. So without any further ado, let's, uh, let's get started on the last week of Yeshua's life. The last few days, really. Uh, chapter 14, verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. Uh, now the debate here is whether Mark went with the Roman or Jewish reckoning of time. If the reckoning was Jewish, when days begin and end at sunset, then this was Nisan thirteen, but if this was by the Roman reckoning of time with days beginning and ending at midnight, then this would have been Nisan twelve, because they wouldn't have been talking about the day the lambs were sacrificed, but about the actual the timing of the actual meal because that was the main event, and during this time period. Passover as a a word had really morphed into describing the whole week of Unleavened Bread, and you know, so the entire thing was called Passover. That they're listed separately is another indicator that the audience was not primarily Jewish. We see this in Josephus's Antiquities 14.2.1, where he was writing to a Roman audience about the Jewish Civil War um, during the time of the um, first uh, triumvirate of Julius Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus, before Rome stepped in and took over that mess. This is in the first century BCE. Um, Josephus, uh, let's see, at, as this happened at the time when the Feast of Unleavened Bread was celebrated, which we call the Passover, the principal men among the Jews left the country and fled to Egypt. So Josephus is calling the entire celebration from beginning to end the Passover and not just Nisan 14 on the biblical calendar. If that was clear as mud, don't worry about it. Um, if you missed last week's episode, it was all about the biblical festival calendar. So if you need to, you can check out my archives and listen to it or um, read it. Remember, Josephus was a priest in the first century. Um, he was captured. During um, the time of the destruction of the temple in the first century, and he became a slave of the family of the emperor, and he was freed later, and he wrote Jewish histories after that. So he was writing to a Roman audience. All right, the rest of uh, verse one here. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Now, there's a lot to say about this little verselet here. First of all, we have another Mark in Sandwich here. Now remember that that is a literary device that the author of Mark likes to use, where you have a story within a story and the first and the last few verses tell the same story, but they're broken up by another story inserted into the middle like a sandwich. Uh, But it's also called a sandwich because the insides are important to understanding the outsides and vice versa. The bread of this sandwich will be the actual outworking of the plot to kill Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, um, by an insider. And the inside of this sandwich will be the honoring of Yeshua by an outsider. But all of this has to do with his death. All right. And we have the chief priests and the scribes mentioned here. The scribes are, at least in Mark, portrayed as the top adversaries of Yeshua, being featured in more challenges of his authority than anyone else. These were the legal professionals of the day. They were experts in both Torah and Jewish law, which aren't entirely the same. The chief priests, of course, would be the formal and permanent temple staff. So this would be the high priest and the former high priests. So, you know, Annas and his sons and son-in-law Caiaphas, as well as the commander of the temple guard and the three treasurers of the temple. And these would be Sadducees, you know, who we will never see mentioned again, you know, is going to be the Pharisees. Pharisees will never be mentioned again. They weren't part of the temple elite although they there were undoubtedly pharisees sitting on the sanhedrin court if that was indeed who ended up trying yeshua um we'll debate that when the time comes and i i have some really interesting things to share with you about that now ancient commentators like josephus the authors of the dead sea scrolls and the later rabbis and um, the talmudic materials all described the chief priests and Sadducees as bullies. Rich, nasty bullies. So their involvement with anything underhanded was not outside of what other Jewish writings were already saying, as um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and would later say uh, in Josephus and the Talmud. And uh, the verse says that they were seeking... Okay, which means they were absolutely looking for a way to arrest him and by stealth, which is the Greek word dolos, which is a word associated not just with being discreet, but actually also with deception and not just to arrest, but to kill. And this is an agenda, not an arrest leading to an investigation to find out the truth as you know, Torah demands And, uh, as the later Mishnah tractate Sanhedrin would lay down as standard operating procedure and, you know, I ought to say this, okay? I read Sanhedrin years ago and I actually had to read it again recently when I was doing some of the other broadcasts for this. And according to their records, a typical trial really bent over backward to exonerate and be merciful to the accused people. The rabbis who authored it did not want people executed lightly or illegitimately, and the hoops you had to jump through in order to do so were maddening. In light of later Jewish writings then, and we just don't know how much of this was in play during the first century and how much was formulated later as, you know, how things should have been done. Um, You know, what happened never should have happened. It was going to be a miscarriage of justice and Mark gives us a forewarning with the statement that they were seeking for ways to arrest him in stealth for the purpose of killing him and not on account of justice or righteousness. And this cannot be separated from the telling of the parable of the tenants and the vineyard because that was the final straw for them. What he accused them of, when they were guilty of it, um, but... They could not let that stand at that point. Verse 2. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And they were right about that. Okay, during the Passover, the population of Jerusalem, which was generally 25 to 30,000 people, swelled by somewhere between 85 and 300,000 more. According to Josephus, who really likes to exaggerate his numbers, one year, of brouhaha resulted in 30,000 pilgrims being trampled. I'm not going to quote from it because there's just too much of it, but uh, Josephus' Antiquities 17, chapter 9. Um, Lobe 17, 213 to 15 talks about the dangers, okay, of riling up Passover crowds. And so the concerns of the chief priests are not unwarranted if they did what they wanted but weren't careful there could be massive rioting and bloodshed the word for people here is laos with the meaning of not only some people but a multitude in fact it shows up in the septuagint the greek um exodus the greek version of uh, the torah and everything <laughs> of exodus um 156 times this word laos shows up uh, referring to the people group in Egypt and the wilderness, but not when the mixed multitude is referred to in Exodus 1238. So this is an insider term. They are afraid of their own people and their festival um, proclivity for writing, you know, you know, when outraged, they, they would do this. <laughs> but they're also in a pickle because after the festival, Yeshua would go back to Galilee and who knows how much more popular he might become before their next chance. So they were needing to act now, and yet acting now would almost certainly lead to disaster and a clash with the Roman authorities. But, you know, now we have the bottom piece of bread in our and sandwich, and the theme of it is treachery from outsiders. Remember, this will be important for interpreting the next two portions of the story. You know, it it only seems misplaced. Uh, Verse 3, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. First bit of business. This is not the woman referred to in Luke 7. Although there's a surface-level similarity of a woman at a feast with a nard, that's where the similarities end. This woman is not portrayed as a sinner. Yeshua is not judged to be lacking in discernment. His head here and not his feet are anointed. In Luke, she was only at his feet as he was reclining and therefore could not have reached his head. No mention of wiping his feet with her hair or wetting them with her tears. Although both hosts are named Simon, it was the most popular Jewish man's name of the time, as evidenced in first century documents. And nothing in Luke is said about her being wasteful or anointing him for burial. So when we conflate them, as chronological gospel accounts do, and I am not a big fan of them because they destroy the narrative and the overall story in favor of something with more a more modern but less meaningful feel it becomes boring like a history book, okay? But when we bring them together and make them the same event, we have to ignore a lot of reasons not to do so. Just because Yeshua said that wherever the gospel account would be proclaimed, that what she did would also be proclaimed doesn't mean that every gospel will mention her specifically. It's idiomatic of the honor due to this woman here in Mark. You know, we've got to stop holding the gospel to modern standards of accuracy because they didn't talk or think in those terms. Just because we do doesn't mean we have it right. Luke is a very different sort of document than Mark or Matthew which tell the same story. And so Luke presents things in a very different manner, usually to facilitate the recording of Yeshua's parables. So they are in Bethany, presumably where they've been staying all this time. And maybe Simon is a relative of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, uh, whom Yeshua healed of um, a skin disease. Okay. Not that he healed Lazarus, Mary, or Martha of a skin disease, but Simon, okay? Certainly not leprosy as we see it today, which is called Hansen's disease, but this designation of Simon the leper suggests this man was known among believers. And as there were so many men named Simon, nicknames were probably not uncommon. Like, oh, Peter, maybe, right? Um... Yeshua was cl- reclining at table, and so this was a banquet setting and an unnamed woman comes to the banquet which that was likely an all male affair, crossing the gender boundaries of the day, carrying an alabastron um that one um i am um, i have um pictures that I'm gonna link in there um of Roman and Greek alabastrons, okay? So you take a look at the transcript. Um, An alabastron describes the shape and not the materials, despite how this is translated. Now, if you've ever been to a good museum, they will have a ton of these little bottles on display. And I saw a lot of them when I was at the St. Louis Art Museum. But evidently I took no pictures because I was on an Egyptology kick back at the time, and I have a ton of pictures of that stuff. I was really into studying Exodus then. Now, the ointment inside was incredibly expensive. Pure nard being from the root of the spike nard plant, harvested in India, which was used in both perfumes and medicines. Although the root came from India, manufacturing was an important industry in Italy and Corinth. One of the reasons why it was popular in Jerusalem was because of the stench of the blood of the sacrifices. Um, Because despite the incense used continually, it was evidently not enough to satisfy sensitive upper class noses. Now. I linked pictures of these alabastrons in the transcript that will go up Friday. Um, but the alabastron was usually stoppered and sealed, but they were narrow enough so that they could be snapped. If you actually wanted to do that, which very rarely happened because they still find a lot of these little flasks fully intact. The reasons why, the reason why no one broke them is because these ointments were fragile and would spoil Very quickly, if allowed to continually be exposed to the air. Such a flask of nard might have even been a family heirloom or an ingenious way for a city dweller to invest their life savings when they would be unable to invest in land or animals. Much easier to carry and hide one of these small flasks than, say, 300 denarii or entire, you know, an entire year's wages for a laborer, okay, or a sheep. Now unlike the woman in Luke 7 this unnamed woman promptly empties out the entire volume onto his head you know, it probably happened so quickly that everyone in attendance was shocked woman barges in pulls out the flask snaps it and pours the contents out onto yeshua and is often the case when someone is extravagant in their devotion, people rush to condemn. Some silently and some not so silently. But either way, you know, it's a great lesson for us. Because we do this too. (laughs) Um, Outpourings of love, you know, literally an outpouring in this case, makes everyone else feel like they've been one-upped. And so the need to defend ourselves often shows up in mock righteousness. And we just very discreetly had uh, a a theme word for chapter 14 pop up, didomi, which is related to the word paradidomi that we saw in the passion predictions. She gave didomi to Yeshua and the chief priests elders and scribes will paradidomi and judas too give him over remember how we began this chapter with the scribes and the chief priests plotting how they would do it well hold on to your hats cuz we aren't done with this word yet it is going to pop up over and over and over you might even get sick of it actually it is the way it's used is horrible Throughout this entire chapter, uh it's it's a betrayal word. It's um you know on on one hand you've got this beautiful word didomi where she gives to Yeshua and you got paradidomi um which in the passion predictions we saw meaning to hand somebody over for judgment. So so Judas is going to paradidomi the um the chief priests, uh, the scribes, and, um, the elders are going to para Yeshua, over to, uh, Pilate. So, I mean, you can't hardly get a starker contrast, but that's how things go in Mark and Sandwiches. And, uh, oh, goodness sakes. Be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to... I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to part two of Gospel of Mark, uh, episode 62, where we are beginning chapter 14, and this is the famous account of Yeshua being anointed for burial by the woman with the jar of spikenard. And, of course, the beginning of Judas' betrayal. So, with any... Further, without any further ado, let's, let's get back to it. Uh, starting, uh, chapter 14, verse four, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now, when studying logical fallacies, this one is often referred to as, think of the children. It is an appeal to the emotions that has squat to do with anything even remotely applicable to the situation. An appeal to emotion is what debaters do when they have nothing useful to say, when they're trying to get the audience on their side, but they don't have anything other than emotions to appeal to. You can see it on social media all the time. It is intrinsically up to the owner of something to decide what they will do with what belongs to them. If she had applied it to herself, they wouldn't have said anything. If she had held on to it, they wouldn't have known of its existence. But she took her property and lavished it on Yeshua. How dare she? And not only did they think these self-serving thoughts, but some of them actually shamed her publicly. Right there. Maybe it was easier because she's not one of the twelve, not a man in a patriarchal society, or maybe her gift made them uncomfortable. That's actually, you know, I, I think it's all three, but that one I think, I think they were really uncomfortable. You know, gifts can do that, but she has nothing in return. We find such actions personally threatening because they challenge us to up our own game, and generally we do not want to. I remember once, God rebuked me, and this was years ago. I was watching one of those guys who carries a heavy cross from place to place. He has an act of devotion, and I was scoffing at him, okay? And, you know, his, I presumed, empty actions. Well, God doesn't see the actions so much as the reason behind them, and he let me know that with at least one of these guys, and undoubtedly more than that, this was an extravagant and costly act of devotion one that no one can ignore many scoff at and comparatively few probably admire or aspire to so when we see the acts of devotion of others uh we need to back off because our motives might need some serious checking out we would do well to measure up our devotion compared to that of those we scoff at we may not understand we may not approve we may find it silly but we don't know everything. And Yeshua will respond to them the way I was responded to when I was being an overly sensitive, self righteous gooberhead over the guy carrying the cross. Not a banner moment in my life. Now, I want you to notice that though she is unnamed here, so are the identities of those who are thinking evil thoughts about her and rebuking, um, the unnamed woman, okay? They aren't even identified here as being among the 12, and so it's almost as though they aren't even worth mentioning, which is insulting in and of itself. Also, there are people who claim that this anointing was a messianic activity, and she was anointing him as high priest or king, but there is nothing about this that is like that kind of anointing, and if it was perceived that way, then everyone failed to see it. Now, I've written elsewhere that it was indeed a culturally recognized form of honoring a king. However, but not in the formal sense of inaugurating a reign or consecrating someone for formal service. But no one saw this as either messianic or subversive. You know, they objected to the extravagance. And this ties us to another account in Mark. Sometimes we just want things to be... It's like it's not enough. Oh, it's enough, okay? It's enough without drawing invalid conclusions, okay? Uh Verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Extravagant worship is, by its very nature, you know, impossible to ignore. When genuine, it's a beautiful thing, and... When all for show, it sometimes is at the expense of the poor, but usually because they're being forced to pay for it out of their own pockets. But no one was being oppressed here. This was the Passover, and a great many pilgrims were blessing the poor and including them in their festival dinners as Torah demands. So it's unlikely that anyone was starving on this particular day because of her not selling that and giving the money to the poor anyway. Yeshua rebukes them for even going there and messing with her. But something else here. We are only one chapter removed from the widow who put the two lepta into the temple coffers as an act of worship. That account directly preceded the Olivet Discourse. And then we had the account of the applauding elites. And now this. Likely this unnamed woman... This was probably the only thing of immense value she had, because she wasn't described as being wealthy, so we cannot assume she was. Nor can we assume she is poor, because if she was, then she would have sold the nard long before this. This was a significant action on more than one level, as was the widow's offering. The sum who judged and rebuked her shamed her publicly, thereby thereby exalting themselves with empty words about supporting the poor. You know, they, uh, Yeshua, you know, always a lover of the honor reversal, turns their argument on its head and honors, um, her action on his behalf. Not only that. He's going to call their bluff because people who are screaming at others to help the poor generally are not the same people who are out there actually doing it. And there have been studies done, especially people who talk about it on social media. They're not the ones helping. Um, most folks are just using emotional appeals as a form of posturing, you know, which is to be despised because it's nothing but a cheap shot. But Yeshua is never fooled and he is going to issue an honor cha- issue an honor challenge of his own in response to theirs at her expense. Um verse seven for you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Notice how many times the word you came up there. Yeah, I love this like yeah, you guys can follow up on your own suggestion every day for the rest of your lives, and I like the addition of whenever you want. So they're at a banquet, which is not a regular meal, but a formal one because they're actually reclining. A banquet, probably eating more than their fair share, and they're pitching a fit about extravagance. You've seriously gotta be kidding me. It's like someone with their own private island and jet lecturing people about their carbon footprint when everything required to build their green home had to be flown in or shipped from the mainland. No matter how green their house is, they will never end up even on the resource expenditure on that. All right, Their carbon footprint will always be bigger than their private island. (laughs) So these guys who are banqueting and rebuking How many poor people did they invite? Yeah, didn't think so. Okay, so I also want to go back to an earlier parable. The parable of the wineskin and the cloak because it comes into play here in a big way. So this is chapter 2 of the Gospel of Mark, beginning in verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, he tears the patch away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This parable is about doing what is appropriate, when it is appropriate to do it, and for that, there are rarely any hard and fast rules. Is fasting bad or forget it? For- forbidden? No, sometimes it's commanded. But to fast at the wedding feast is a grave dishonor to the bridegroom. Is it wrong to patch a garment or to fill a wineskin? No, but to do it with the wrong materials or without the proper preparation, you know, soaking the old wineskin to soften it, it's foolishness. When we are in the presence of the master, we must act appropriately, and nothing is too extravagant or wonderful to do for him or to him. If there were poor at the feast, they should be fed, right? If there were no poor at the feast, they should be invited, right? So he has called them out on their hypocrisy. Love God, love your neighbor. Don't make the mistake of thinking it's one or the other. Verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So, obviously not an anointing for the priesthood or kingship. Not saying that he isn't our king and high priest. But that isn't what this was. Yeshua says, right here, says that this is an anointing for burial. It's really the first act of vindication we are going to see related to his wrongful death, and it happens right here before his betrayal by Judas. Was she the first to get it, or was this just simply the case of someone being sensitive to the spirit and suddenly finding herself compelled to do this, and she was obedient to it? No way to know. Maybe she just loved him, you know? However, the divine purpose for this action has been defined right here for us. And sometimes we try to get cute, but we also have to listen when Yeshua says, this is this. And this is huge. This is a lot of money to spend anointing someone for burial. But it also foreshadows the fact that no one present at that dinner, his disciples, would be performing that service for him as they would all be in hiding, pretty much, or one would be dead. Um... Anyway, uh, I also love the phrase, she has done what she could. Aren't our lives as believers all about doing what we can and how we all have different roles to play? Perhaps she was born for this moment. Perhaps that flask had been handed down from grandmother to mother to daughter because each one of them had been given that task. Who knows? I imagine we all have an alabastron of our own. A purpose. We just have to be listening when it's time to pour it out. Verse 9. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You know, something here. Okay? One, this is a prophecy that the gospel will be proclaimed in the whole world, and we haven't gotten there yet. Okay? And this is also the last time Yeshua will speak the word gospel in this gospel. I have this book of all the people groups in China and another one about Buddhists all over the world, and similar books could be written about Muslims and probably have, and you would be astonished how many places and how many people groups have never heard the gospel. I know people are looking for his return, but we haven't preached enough yet for me to be willing to look for it yet. Way too much work still needs to be done. But wherever missionaries travel and wherever the word is preached, this account is in the Bibles, and her name is not mentioned, but maybe at this point it was dangerous to do so. Who knows? Whoever wrote John's gospel equates her with Mary, the sister of Lazarus, but then his account occurs before the triumphal entry and was by far the last written and is telling the story for an entirely different vantage point. Remember that these reflect the compilation of oral histories. That's how ancient documents came to be. Authors gathered the reflections and memories of the early participants and put them in a certain order based on the story that Yahweh inspired them to tell. With Mark, they are put together in such a way as to present Yeshua as the Yahweh warrior, the arm of the Lord, the suffering servant of Messiah, whereas Matthew is much more about Yeshua, the greater Moses. Luke is more focused on Yeshua the storyteller, and John focuses on Yeshua as the embodiment of Yahweh on earth. And this is all done in a very kosher and ancient Jewish manner, even if it bothers our boring focus-on-the-facts modern sensibilities. And that ends the meat portion, actually, of our Mark and Sandwich. The first slice of bread concerned the desires and plotting of the elites to arrest him in stealth and kill him. The middle of the sandwich is about the virtuous actions of a nun named woman to didomi, didomi, give her, give him her extravagant love. Um, So we have behavior to avoid and behavior to adopt in our own lives. And the final piece of bread will be an utterly abhorrent example to avoid. The betrayal of Yeshua by someone who has every reason to be far more extravagant to him than an unnamed admirer. Really, by not naming her, the irony becomes all the more poignant. Verse 10. Then, excuse me, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. So why now? Why did he do this? First of all, he went to them. Although they were seeking a way to arrest Yeshua, Judas is the one who sought them out personally. We have no indication that the temple elites reached out to any of the disciples, and it would have been stupid to try because in the ancient world, um, it was a lot more loyalty-based than ours, like ex- exponentially more loyalty-based than ours. Disciples didn't turn on their teachers. Their honor was all bound up in the honor of that teacher. And you didn't jeopardize it. It's why they only asked questions in private mm. and not in front of everyone else. You didn't want to run the risk of, one, shaming your teacher if he couldn't answer, or, two, looking stupid in public, which these guys did in private a lot. But Judas decides to throw all that away, and the word translated betray is no shock, para diddomi it carries the specific meaning in scripture of handing someone over and almost always to the gentiles for the pouring out of God's wrath on them as i said before we saw it in the passion predictions predictions excuse me of um 931 and twice in 1033 my mouth is getting so dry it's getting really bad um it's translated into english as betray hand over give over, deliver over. It's not a positive word. We're going to see it throughout chapter 14 as the whole, um, you know, didomi, paradidomi dichotomy is the major theme for the rest of the Gospel of Mark. In the Septuagint, you know, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, paradidomi shows up three times with reference to the suffering servant of Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 6 and 12. Uh, let's see. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, paga, the iniquity of us all. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide spoil with the strong, um, because he poured out Ara, Era, his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession intercession for pagah the transgressors. Um, the translators of the Septuagint, when they translated this section, they chose paradidomi for the translation of all these words, making it the logical choice for the author of Mark to use as well. In fact, he uses it a lot. It'll show up again in verse 18, 21, 41, 44, and in chapters 15, verses 1, 10, and 15. But again, why now? Was this announcement of his burial the last straw for Judas, who was now seeing that there would be no earthly power, honor, position, or wealth involved, and he decided to get on the other side of this before everything went down? You know, the author of John says he was a thief, but what does that even mean? Was it just that he stole from the money bag or had he always been a spy? Being the only possible, well, possibly the only Judean in the lot, probably. Um, was he getting out while he could? You know, with what he could get after seemingly wasted his life for all this time? We just don't know for sure because his motives are never discussed. I suppose that in the light of the enormity of what he did, not only in personal, but also cosmic terms, um, meaning um, this side and, and the other side, you know, the battling of, of the armies of the Lord and the armies of the evil one, right? Uh, and social ones is what, well, you know, it, it doesn't matter why he did it. You know, if it did, the text would say something. And, um, gosh, you know, it ought to really be sobering for us too, because, you know, we can put ourselves above Judas, but, um, we can't guarantee that we wouldn't do this. We'd like to think we can guarantee, but how many people have betrayed him after knowing him in the most intimate ways? We have to be very humble. And very aware that we are not perfect. Verse 11. And uh, when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Um, when they, the chief priests, so the permanent temple staff, and not the normal priests who did their two weeks in festivals and then went home, got this offer, uh, they wouldn't have hardly been able to believe their luck. This had to be unforeseen. And they promised to didomi, give Judas money, and Judas sought a chance to perididomi, betray Yeshua. And again, as the chief priests and scribes were seeking Zeteo, how to do this in verse 1, here in verse 11, at the end of the sandwich, Judas began seeking Zeteo an opportunity for betrayal. This sandwich begins and ends with seeking. Okay. And it's filled throughout with the opposing verbs of giving and giving over, didomi and paradidomi. Judas is going to give Yeshua over for relatively little being given in return. The unnamed woman gave an incredible treasure to Yeshua, and then she was rebuked for not having given it to the poor. The chief priests and scribes were seeking to do evil. Judas sought them out and then went seeking an opportunity to do evil. It's, it's, you know, yeah. This account of functions from beginning to end as a cautionary tale. No one who seeks an opportunity to do evil will fail to find it. It's like how you say no one ever goes on a witch hunt without finding someone who's going to die for being a witch, whether they are a witch or not. Um... You know, and they're likely going to feel as though they're perfectly justified for doing it. No one here likely thought of themselves as villains, okay? Not the chief priests, scribes, Judas, or the people rebuking the unnamed woman. Conversely, no one seeking an opportunity to do good will fail to find it either. (laughs) You know, we also have this choice... Throughout life, between giving and giving over, loyalty and betrayal, love and hate, self-sacrifice and personal gain. Ah. All right. So, anyway, next week, we're going to tackle the Passover and the controversy surrounding the differences between the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John a subject which I have changed my mind on in recent years based on more study and a letting go of some popular but tenuous and unsupportable Hebrew roots theories. Um, you know, uh, If everything that sounded more Jewish or novel was actually the right answer, right? We have this desire for things to be cool and dazzling and to really, uh, something we can dazzle people with. Anyway, see you next week.